the light of life. So the Pharisees say to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bear witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, as he thought in the temple, but no one arrested him, because his hour has not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He who will, who will, I am He who will die in your, I am He who will die in your sins. For they said to him, "Who are you?" Jesus said to them, "Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from Him." They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believe him. Let's say the Lord. Thank you very much. Friends, uh, keep your Bibles there in John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And we are in John chapter 8, verse 12 to 30, picking up where we left off last week from verse 11 of this chapter. Now, before we get it started into um, this Sunday's sermon, let me just remind us of the big picture of the Gospel of John so that we don't get lost in the trees, we don't, lose, we don't lose the forest for the trees. Um, the Gospel of John, um, so far, is all about how Jesus' life and ministry is an encounter between the single light of God, the Son of God himself, who became enfleshed so that he might enter the world of darkness and create children of light. Children of light born not according to the will of man, not according to the flesh, not according to our own desires, but born from God born from above. And we see these uh, historical events, Jesus' discussions, his miracles, his debates with these Pharisees and other interlocutors, not merely as historical events, as mere historical persons engaged in some kind of a dialogue or his person and works doing his thing. No, these events are historical manifestations of a deeper cosmological and spiritual battle of light and dark. 
Jesus, the light of the world, encounters the darkness. The words that people speak against him, the miracles that he does, the conversions that he um, um, confirms, are all manifestations of a deeper spiritual reality. And we see this all the way throughout the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John so far, from chapters 2, really, all the way to chapter uh, 13, we're going to see is Jesus' life and ministry pinnacling and Jesus washing the disciples' feet in chapter 13. From chapters 14 to 16 later on, and chapter 17, we're going to see Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room right before he goes on to the cross. And chapters 18 all the way to 21 is Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So we're nearing the end. We're just four chapters away from Jesus and the upper room discourse from chapters 14 to 17. And then after that, it would just be the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Everything in this gospel is climaxing and kind of uh, crescendoing to that point when Jesus will be crucified. The hour had come, he will also be resurrected. All the conflicts here is intensifying. It's preparing us for that final moment when the darkness will overcome the light just for a moment so that the light would overcome the darkness. And so far, we've seen this pattern. We've seen that Jesus is confirming his words with his miracles uh, all over this gospel. We're going to see, as we've already seen, that Jesus will claim that he's the bread of life. And after he claimed that he's the bread of life, or right before it, he would uh, make bread so that he would feed 5,000 people. He would commit a miracle to confirm his words. Right before that, he claimed to be the living water, and he turned water into wine. And now we're going to see in chapter 9 a miracle of Jesus turning a blind man and causing him to be able to see again, restoring his sight. And in chapter 8, we're going to see an anticipation of that. Jesus, in effect, by claiming to be the light of the world, by claiming to be the light of life, is communicating that everyone around him is deeply blind, so blind they do not even see their own blindness, they don't even see their own sins, so blind that they will crucify the source of light himself in just a few more chapters. So friends, keep up with us here as we go into this text in chapter 8, verse 12 to 30. Last week, uh, we heard about the woman caught in adultery where the Pharisees caught this woman so that Jesus would be uh, trapped. Jesus would be forced to either condemn or let her go. But of course, Jesus um, beguiled their attempts. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. This is verse 11. Go and from now on sin no more to the woman caught in adultery. Now, the question that lingers now is this. How shall sinners who are condemned sin no more? Jesus already saying everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin and will be condemned. And Jesus has revealed that the Pharisees are no less sinful than the woman. And now he says to the woman, I do not condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. How will that happen? What kind of verdict will he uh, choose to deploy and what will happen now to the Pharisees and there will be a big debate here anticipating the blind man seeing in chapter 9 with that being said there will be three points from our sermon today three points first what does it mean to be in the dark what does it mean to be blind in darkness second what it means to be enlightened and third the light of the world slain by darkness let us pray
Father, what an amazing and beautiful gospel that you've revealed to us. That we were all in the dark, that you are the light of the world. Father, you did not leave us to the darkness. Instead, you sent your only son so that we might have a newness of life, that we might have life. And though we scorned you, you continue to pursue us. You do not leave us to ourselves. You caused us to become born anew. Thank you, Lord God, for this. Help us understand this. Help us be clear about this. Help us now live in a way where you want us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how shall now sinners continue to sin no more? Look at verse 12. What follows here in verse 12 to 30 will be a big debate, another dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are not yet done trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And Jesus' claim in verse 12 is what they will be disputing. First point, what does it mean to walk in darkness? Look at Jesus in verse 12. He says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How will now sinners go and sin no more? Jesus is saying, you will no longer walk in darkness. You will sin no more because you will have the light of life. And this presupposes that those who are around Jesus, those who are sinners, do not yet have the light. They're still blind in darkness. Light of life indicates a kind of metaphor that shows us that we do not see where we're going. We need a light. We're in darkness and we're groping in the dark. We do not know where exactly we're going. We don't know our left from our right. We don't know right from wrong. We don't know the truth from what is false. We don't know the true God. So Jesus is saying, you must believe in him so that you might have the light of life. This is the main claim to be disputed. And this is the main claim that the Pharisees are going to challenge him about. And we're going to keep returning to that in this sermon. So verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And the Pharisees, in objecting in this way, are revealing that they still are in the dark. They still are confused. They have no idea who Jesus is, even though he's been telling them the same thing from the beginning over and over again. Right? And this is a bit of a ridiculous claim, friends. In, in verse 13, the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Right? It's a ridiculous statement. What has Jesus been doing this whole time? From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, what has Jesus been doing? He's been preaching sermons. He's been <laughs> causing all these miracles. He's been uh, teaching the Pharisees the right way to teach the law. And what is he saying in John chapter 5? I have many witnesses. John the Baptist witnessed about me. My works witnessed about me. I showed you many signs. People believe in me. John chapter 7, right before the woman caught in adultery, who was also probably not bearing witness about him, Nicodemus bore witness to him. A lot of people who believed in him at the Feast of Booths bore witness to him. This is the Christ. This is the prophet. What are you talking about, Pharisees? Just a moment ago, you were trying to trap me, and I once again showed you that your traps are futile. Why are you still in this belief? Why do you keep proclaiming the same objections? Every time I meet your objections, right, you still continue to throw them back right at me. 
And this, I think, shows the first indication of what it means to be in the dark. John Calvin, uh, in his 16th century classic, right, Institutes of the Christian Religion, his first line in that book says this, that true and sound wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of the self. True knowledge of God and true knowledge of the self. True and sound wisdom consists in basically two things. You know God, you know yourself. And Calvin says he doesn't know which one comes first. If you know yourself truly, then you know yourself in light of God because you're his image bearer and you're a sinner against his character and law. And if you know God truly, then you know yourself because you know who you are before him. Everything else in the world kind of fades away because it's, what's, it's his opinion that matters. So Calvin says, if you want to be wise, you know these two fundamental things. You know God and you know yourself. And in the Pharisees continuing the same objections over and over again against Jesus, what does this reveal? What does this reveal? They don't know who God is. The very ones who claim to know the law, the very ones who claim to know what righteousness means, the very ones who look religious have no clue who God is, and therefore they have no idea who they themselves are in light of who God is. And not only that, in the Pharisees repeating their objections, an objection that they have come up with again and again in this book, is revealing to us that they don't not only not know who God is, they don't want to know who God is. They can't know who God is. They don't want to know who God is. And because of that, they will choose to use all their reasoning, their whole being, their whole actions, their whole feelings against God. In other words, your heart orientation determines how you use your reasoning, how you use your logic. The Pharisees are coming up with, uh, with, with arguments and judgments and, and value statements that reveal where they are from the beginning. They don't want to know who this is. They want to deny the truth. It doesn't matter what Jesus does in front of them. It doesn't matter how many miracles Jesus does in front of them. It doesn't matter how many times Jesus escapes their traps with Jesus' sound arguments. Because the problem, friends... It's not with the evidence. The problem is not with the logic. The problem is not with the reasoning. The problem is not what's outside of you. It's what's in you. And that's why Jesus is insistent of saying the same things over and over again. He never changes the message to soothe his hearers because he knows What's problematic is not his message or his reasoning. It's the hearers. Look at verse 25, second part of it. So they said to him, who are you? Repeating the question again. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. What's he been telling them? I come from the Father. I'm the light of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. If you don't come to me, you'll thirst. You'll hunger. I represent the Father. I and the Father are one. He is not changing the message at all. I've been telling you the same thing from the very beginning, right? And it's amazing to me how many times the church has become so insecure because we think we need to change the message in order to please our hearers as if the problem is in the message and not in the hearers, right? We see this throughout the history of philosophy. We see it throughout the history of Christianity where the church has done this over and over again. In the history of philosophy, you can possibly boil down every objection to Christianity into two categories, romanticism and rationalism, 
And by romanticism, I don't mean you're, uh, uh, you know, a, a dying romantic where you're always, you know, falling in love or something like that. No, that's not what I mean. I mean romanticism as in the philosophy that says Christianity can't be true because Christianity is way too rational. They would argue that Christianity categorizes things too neatly. Christianity says that it's all about doctrine and dogma, clear propositions, the Nicene uh, Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith, all these propositions about the Trinity, about how you get saved. Christianity reduces life to a few rational, reasonable propositions. But the Romantic philosophers would say Christianity is not about truth, and life is not about truth. Life is about feeling. Life is about Life, it's ethics, it can't be boiled down. God is so much bigger than that. You have to be authentic. You need to know your life yourself. You need to live well. And this climax in, in the German romantics and the Dutch romantics, they had a, they had a dictum. They had a, a saying that they would repeat to their listeners. They would say, what? True philosophy is life, not dogma. Love, not doctrine. Life, not dogma. Love, not doctrine. And in those eras, in the revivalist movements, Christians actually tweaked their message. And they would say, following Jesus is not about believing a few creeds and dogmas and propositions and statements. Following Jesus is about life. You live your life well. You feel well. You will be happy. You will live a life that is bigger than life. You'll be authentic. You will be true to yourself. Believe in Jesus, but it's really not about believing. It's really about living. Feel it. And the moment Christianity shifts into this direction, trying to appease their hearers, guess what happens? The world changes. And now, Christianity is not too rational. The age of science came about, and what happened? Christianity is way too irrational. You see, we're about reason. We're about propositions. We're about empirical judgment. We're all about facts and statements of truth. We're about universal laws of nature. Christianity is about the enthusiast, the irrational. And suddenly, we're, we're anxious again. <laughs> say, okay, okay, okay. Christianity is reasonable. We do uh, do scientific stuff. Look, we have Christian scientists everywhere. We, we, we can show you that we're, we make rational judgments. We can show you that Christianity is based on history. It's not about feeling. Oh, we, we don't want to associate ourselves with those who are just feely feeling. You know, we're, we're not, that's not what Christianity is all about, right? We're incredibly insecure. We end up changing the message to soothe our hearers. But the problem, friends, is that you'll never please them. We're never going to please them. What, what did Jesus do? Fed 5,000 people. A chapter later, they all left him. Jesus healed a paralytic. A few verses later, the paralytic reported him. Jesus trapped the Pharisees in their own argument when they brought an adulterous woman before Jesus. And then they repeated an objection that they had given to him before in chapter 5. And later, Jesus is going to heal a man born blind. Again, the Pharisees were not satisfied. His listeners were not satisfied. Later, he's going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. People were not satisfied. He's going to raise himself from the dead. 
and he's going to be ascended. And his listeners, again, were not satisfied and persecuted his followers. Friends, the problem is not with your reasoning. The problem is not with the evidences of Christianity. The problem is in the heart. You don't know God. We don't know God. They don't know God. They don't know that Jesus is the representative of the Father. Because they don't want to. Doesn't matter how many miracles happens in front of us. It doesn't matter how many sermons we preach. It doesn't matter how many arguments we win. If God does not raise the dead, we will never believe in him. So we don't know God. Not only do we not know God, because we judge from the flesh, right? Jesus says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. We are stuck in our ways. We're blinded by our own sin, and therefore we cannot know God. And we will understand that we did not even know ourselves. Look at verse 21. He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews are confused about this. Will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. There's a complete antithesis here between Jesus and his listeners. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And I told you in verse 24 that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The listeners did not merely know, not know who God is. They did not know who they truly were. Dead in sins. Blind in sins. And notice the word here does not merely say that you have sinned as a particular action that you've done in the past. They are in sin. They're in it. They are it, right? They're not merely guilty. They're not merely condemned. They don't merely have the status of condemnation. They're also in sin. Their very nature is a sinful nature. They're in it. They're walking in it. They are it. They are sinners. And then because of their sinners, they sin. They don't see that. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were representing God. They thought that they were all put together. They thought that they were obedient to God. Instead, what we see in this text is that they don't even know themselves. They don't see the filth that they are in. They don't see the filth that they are. They don't see that the God in front of them is challenging them, that they are in the dark. And before we get to point two, before we get to the point where we understand the gospel, that God enlightens our minds, revives us from the dead, we need to see, friends, the predicament we were in. And it's a sobering judgment. It's a sobering predicament. We don't get to look upon our neighbor and say, I haven't done that, so I'm a better person. We don't get to look upon our lives and say, well, overall, I'm a pretty good person. We don't look upon ourselves and say, those sins that I do, that's not really me. I'm better than that. We were in sin unless God does something about it. And it gets more sobering. I'm going to spoil for you the little bit more of the debate because it's going to climax later in the next part of this chapter. Look at verse 44 to 47. This is not in your screens, but if you have your Bibles with you, it's right there on the next page. This is the same crowd. It's going to climax into this way. What does Jesus mean when he says that I am from above? 
You are from below. You are from the world. I am not from the world. Well, look at verse 44 to 47. Friends, this is us apart from Christ. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to your father's your desires, father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That's why you don't believe. This is where you come from. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Do you realize this is a description of us? We were of our father, the devil. There is no truth in us. When we speak, it reveals who we are. When we lie, that shows who we are. We attempted to convict the very God of life of sin. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And here, listen to this, oh friends. I want us to get this. Because if you don't get this, you're not going to get the grace that was given to you. Whoever is of God, hear the words of God. The reason. Listen. The reason why you do not hear from, hear them is that you are not of God. The reason you're rejecting Christ, in other words, is because you were not from him to begin with. There's lots of implications of this. It's not merely claiming, not merely indicating that we were dead in sin and therefore we cannot choose God, but that is precisely the reason why we cannot choose God. It's because we're not from God to begin with. We believe in a myth that God chooses every single person and it is up to our freedom to choose God back. As if God extends with an open arm to anyone who would choose him. And all we have to do is turn around and run to God. As if all we had to do was just accept this grace. But understand this, friends. You cannot choose God apart from God's choosing of you. Don't reverse this. You are very tempted to read this verse in 47. The reason why you are not of God is because you don't hear him. You're tempted to reverse the logical statement of this. The reason why you are not of God is because you don't hear him. In other words, the reason why you are not chosen by God is because you first rejected him. It's the reverse. The reason why you reject God, friends, and let this make you tremble, is that because you might not be chosen by God. And if the reverse is true, if the myth is true, that God invites every single person and doesn't effectually call us, as our statement of faith says, doesn't revive us from the dead, doesn't cure us from our blindness, you know what will happen? Not a single person will ever believe in Jesus. 
Not a single person will ever repent. Not a single person will stop lying. Not a single person will stop, as this text says, worshiping the devil. I hate it when I sat in church meetings where people say, let's not talk about sin because that will offend people. You don't talk about sin, you don't talk about grace. Because you're not going to see the, greatest, the greatness of this grace unless we see the darkness we were in. Don't reverse this, friends. We were running the other direction. We were so dead in sin that apart from God's gracious initiative, we would never have chosen to believe in him in the first place. God must choose you or else you would not choose him. Some of you here are going to say, great, that's just, that, that, that's Calvinism. We don't want to hear no Calvinism. I hate that. Calvinism, as if this was invented by John Calvin? No, friends, this is just Johannian. This is from the Gospel of John. Forget John Calvin at this point. This is the Gospel. Realize the predicament you are in. Only then will you see the grace that is given to you. So if we understand that this is our situation, we were blind, we were dead, we weren't looking for help, we weren't seeking God, no one seeks God. We were blind, dead, actively using our reason and our actions and our feelings to go against Jesus. What is the grace that saves us? What does it mean to be enlightened? Point number two is the reverse of that. Point number two is the reverse of that. If being blind in darkness means you don't know God and you don't know yourself, being enlightened means you come to see God, you come to see yourself. You begin to see that Jesus does not merely represent himself. You come to see that Jesus is not a mere man. You come to see that Jesus is not a mere prophet. He's not one moral religious teacher among many. You come to see, in other words, that Jesus is representing the Father and is in fact one with the Father. And now the Spirit dwells in you so that you can see that His judgment is just. You begin to trust His Word. You, you come to see that He represents the Father. You see Him as beautiful. That He now allows you to call God your Father too. You come to see now that the Spirit is in you. You come to see Him for who He is. You come to trust His Word. And because of that, you come to see who you are. And the filth we were in. And this is not merely a decision, friends. That is a misunderstanding. Yes, you made a decision, but you made a decision to have faith in Jesus Christ only after you were awakened. Let me ask us this. This is the analogy that the Bible repeats over and over again. You were made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 says, you were awakened. Awake, O sleeper. The future resurrection says, we, in the twinkle of an eye, suddenly will have our resurrection bodies in the same way you were now. If you are a believer and you have faith in Jesus Christ, you were made alive, you were blind, and now we see. This is as much as a decision as a baby choosing to decide to get out of her mother's womb. As John 3 says, this is as much as a decision as you deciding to wake up when your alarm or wife or husband or child woke you up this morning. 
When someone wakes you up, you don't go, let me think about that. Ah, I decided. No, you wake up, right? You, you just wake up, you open your eyes, and then suddenly you make decisions. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to now get out of bed, right? You don't decide to wake up. Waking up allows you to decide. You see, regeneration, God causing you to be made alive, means that you now can choose God. You now can choose to obey. You wake up and then you decide. And then suddenly, suddenly, you see everything differently. You can't explain it, right? You see God not merely as useful, but as beautiful. You're captured by it. You don't see his law as burdensome. You don't come, come into church and you feel burdensome and you don't feel bored anymore. You, suddenly you read the Bible and the words come out at you. You come alive, right? You were captured by God. Your imagination would turn. Your heart was changed from the inside out so that now you could become a blessing to other people. You can now walk in newness of life. His commands are not burdensome to you anymore. You now hate your sins. And you don't see yourself in them anymore. It's not you. There, there are a lot of other, you know, mini analogies of this, right? Um, have you ever, you know, just come, you, you've come away maybe from, from a beautiful piece of music and you listen to it. And maybe you're also a musician yourself and you just come home and then you, you, after this concert or something like that, like you come home and you say, I need to learn that song. It was so beautiful. It was captivating. And, and suddenly the hours you spent to learn that piece of music was worth it. It means nothing to you as long as you could learn it. You know, one of my favorite movies this year was La La Land. All right, I know, okay, it's a romantic show. You can judge me. All right, that's fine. I'm, I'm secure in Christ, right? Uh, secure in my masculinity or whatever, right? I, I love the movie La La Land, and I, you know, I was like crying by the end of it. You know, it was a, just a beautiful thing. And I know a lot of us here uh, love that movie too. And a couple of weeks after that movie, one of our members just started playing it, right? And I saw it on Instagram, and I thought, how did she learn that? How did she learn that? That's an, me and Sebastian's theme, if, you, if you're uh, curious. Okay, anyway, never mind. Uh, so she learned the song. It's an amazing thing, and she was able to play it from beginning to end. It must have taken her hours to practice this, right? You see, when you're captivated by love, when you're awakened in your affections, it didn't matter how many hours it took you to practice. It didn't matter how early you got up just so you can know your Bible. It doesn't matter how many sermons you listen to doesn't matter suddenly how many Christians you are with. It's not a burden to you anymore. You see everything anew. You're not yourself anymore. Something happened to you. You were awakened, right? And suddenly now you see the beauties of Jesus Christ. And all you think is you want to imitate this person. Who was this man of sorrows? Let me be like him. Who was a savior? I want to be with him. And then you look upon yourself and the filth we were in. And then we say, I don't recognize that anymore. I don't. This is not merely a decision you make 
I'm not going to have an altar call. I'm not going to have us rededicate our lives to Christ. No. This is your whole life now. Live out who you are. That's what it means to be enlightened, friends. You now what? No longer judge according to the flesh. You now see that he and the Father is one. You now see that he does not merely bear witness about himself, but the Father bears witness to him too. There's a Trinitarian God. You now see that you were once guilty, condemned, and depraved, and polluted in sin. You now see that Jesus had been telling you the same thing from the very beginning. And you now see that he had been talking about his work the hour that he would do on the cross. Where do we get a power to do this? How do we live this walk of light, the life that Jesus offers and promises to us? Well, look at verse 28. The light of the world was slain for you. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father taught me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will see that I am He. And by the way, the Greek again of the word I am He does not have the word He in it. It merely says, you will see and you will know that I am. In other words, he's saying, when you have lifted me up, you will see that I am. You will see that I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God who came to Moses, who walked with Abraham, who spoke with Adam. I am who I am. The God of the Old Testament says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. We've seen this in the gospel. We see it here again. I am the one who's self-defining, the one who's self-acting, the one who's completely sovereign, the one who's the giver of life. But here's the irony. He did not come this time in a burning bush. He did not come this time to render judgment as he did in Genesis 3. He did not come with power and authority as he did to Isaiah, the great and sovereign, unchangeable I am. He came this time as the son of man in the flesh, so that what? When his hour had come, he might be lifted up. What happened to the sovereign, unchangeable I am? He became changeable. He became subject to the will of man. He became subject to the judgment of the Pharisees. The judge stood accused by those who were in judgment. The light of the world was slain by the darkness himself. And the greatest of paradox, because the light should evaporate the darkness, instead the darkness overcame the light for just one moment. He was lifted up on the cross. And in the suffering Son of Man, you might see the love and sovereignty of God for you. He emptied himself 
lifted up on the cross. And because He lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, He bore the commandments that you should have obeyed, and He paid the debt you could not have paid. And He was resurrected so that dead sinners like us could now come to Him and have life. And the amazing thing here is that his only comfort, friends, in verse 29, in this moment where he will be lifted up, it's not in a change of circumstances. He says this, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Do you have unanswered prayers? Do you feel like you've been lifted up on a cross that you did not choose? Do you feel like you have been all alone in your suffering? Well, Jesus suffered more. And Jesus' only comfort was that God was with him. And he did all of these things so that you can now cry with him. He who sent Christ is with you. He has not left you alone. For now you have pleased him. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lest we should boast, because we've been enlightened. Paul, echoing what Christ had done on the cross, echoes, first of all, what we used to do. Friends, how do you know you've been enlightened? How do you know you've been born again? How do you know you're now created anew? How do you know you've seen him as lifted up? How do you know that you've seen the cross as absolutely beautiful? How do you know you've been reconciled to God? Well, look at verse 16 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Listen to this. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. The word regarded could have easily been rendered as judged. We used to render a judgment of Christ according to our flesh. If you are now a Christian, this is how you know that you are a Christian. You no longer judge Christ according to the flesh. You now see him for who he is. You now have been reconciled to God. This is how you know if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But don't ever, ever boast in yourself. Because why? You too once judged Christ according to the flesh. You too once were not able to be convinced. You too had the gospel thrown at you, the light of life lifted up right before your eyes. And no matter what happened, you too were blinded to it. You used everything in your being against him. And if you're not yet a Christian, do you see him anew? Do you see the gospel? The gospel is not, friends, that you've done so many amazing things and now God could regard you as pleased, as pleasing. The gospel, friends, is that you would see the one who was lifted up in your place, 
and that you were created all over again, renewed, so that you might savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now walk in newness of life. Be who you are. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing gospel. We were not merely prone to sin. We were in sin. We were sin. We were dead in our trespasses, Lord God. Nothing you could have done outside of us could have changed us. Nothing anyone could have said outside of us would have changed our minds, our hearts. You had to come inside us. You need to have changed us from the inside out, renewed us as a whole. And you need to continue to do that work and finish that faithful work until that final day when we are resurrected with and along Christ. Help us walk in newness of life. Help us walk in the light. Help us see the truth of who you are. Help us render a judgment according to your judgments, not according to our flesh. Help us live out who we are in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.